1: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
0: Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room.
2: The alligator gar is amongst the biggest freshwater fish in the world. Their distinct features of sharp teeth with double row of teeth on their upper jaw makes it seem these fish would be impossible to catch on the fly. But my next guest today has made the impossible possible with catching these fish numerous times, the long nose and the regular alligator garth. Welcome to my podcast, Ryan King.
3: Thank you, Lauren. It's a pleasure to join you today.
2: I mean, on top of this, you're also the professor of aquatic biology over at Baylor, correct?
3: That's right.
2: I hope I gave you the the right, the right description of alligator gar, because a lot of my information is based on the internet. So sometimes it's better to get the correct information based on a professor. <laughs> and so I'm so glad to have you on the podcast to give us exactly, to learn a little more about alligator gar. But before we kind of go into these species and what they are like, Um, I know you have a fishing story for me and as always, we like to kick the podcast with any story, whether it's gar or trout, you just let us know. So give us your best story.
3: I struggled with when you said that I needed to pick a story because I, as a scientist, I I have a hard time having, picking like favorites of anything. I just, it's just not really in my nature to single any one thing out. But one thing that really resonates, a story that really resonates with me kind of gets back to my youth and I think kind of segues into how I got into both my career as a aquatic scientist, but, but also you know, my, my passion for fly fishing. And I, you know, I grew up in Portland, Oregon and my dad, you know, he, he, was a physician, but he, you know, he, he liked to fly fish. Um, he didn't have a lot of time to do it, but, you know, as a child, you know, I would, he would be tying flies frequently, particularly before, uh, trips you know he would like be Friday night late and he'd be have his tying table out and he'd be tying and he'd be going to the was the deschutes river is usually where he would go with with a couple of his friends and um, I was always very um you know intrigued by his fly tying what he's doing you know but I was you know never really allowed to go the Deschutes is a a big fast-flowing, boulder-strewn, kind of pretty dangerous river for for wading if you don't, don't know what you're doing. And so, you know, so over the years, I, I eventually got to work. I got a fly rod and, you know, I got to do a little fly fishing, but I still never got to go to the Deschutes until finally I was probably, oh, maybe 13 years old, 14, some, something like that. And dad was finally, you know, I guess it was probably my mom that was saying he can't go. <laughs> he finally was it. Okay. You, you can go. I remember, you know, the few days leading up to the trip. I mean, it was all I could think about. Um, Cause you know, I just had these visions of this magical river that, you know, I finally get to go, go to. And I was even like, had old sneakers and dad had bought felt put felt soles yeah. on these shoes. So I wouldn't slip and fall. And he was pretty frugal early on about my fly fishing too. So I had like, you know, the, the most basic of reels and a fiberglass rod and, and, you know, and I had some, some of his re- reject flies, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he was not like gonna waste, like a whole bunch of stuff. So, so I'm, I, we get to the river and, and, you know, the shoots is, um, you, know, you you actually can't you cannot fish from a boat on the Deschutes River it's just really interesting there are a lot of drift boats but they drift to different like spots and then you have to get out and wade fish so no matter what you're you end up wading there and one of the places we would go is a little town called Maupin and then we'd hike up the railroad tracks so that was that was one way you could access the river is that there are these tracks that run along the river basically all, almost the entire length of it and so you hike up the tracks and then you walk down this riprap in and boulders. It's really dangerous. And to get down to the river and then the river is, um, you know, fast flowing and slippery. And, and basically one of the techniques for fishing on the deschutes, I mean, it is, it, it, it's a, it's a tough river to fish is, mm-hmm. is basically trying to fish up underneath these trees for trout that are sitting there, um, waiting for, um, during the day like caddis flies um any sort of uh, terrestrials to fall into the river and and so i just remember you know constantly you know getting my flies caught in the trees and not be able to cast and um and so I, I i i finally made this cast that and and it all seems like slow motion now but i was fishing this elk hair caddis and it and it went up perfectly back up underneath this willow that was just like barely hanging into the tree. And I just, in slow motion, remember this, this, and on the shoots, the native rainbows are called red sides because the the red pattern on them is so pronounced. And it came up and it just gently rose and just sucked in this, this caddis. And I just, you know, was dumbfounded, you know, that I actually had a fish, you know, like, take my fly, you know, it's sort of one of those things in your mind that like, you know, these are goals, you know, that's going to happen someday. And, then, you know, for my first trip, all of a sudden I've, I've got this. And, um, and so this fish takes and it just starts running out line. And, um, I'm like yelling to dad, like dad, I got one. I got one. And, and he's, and he's kind of like dumbfounded as well. That like, how the heck did this kid, he hardly knows anything. And, uh, and, and and this thing in the rivers, one of the things that makes, first of all, these fish, are, if you've never, if, to anyone who ha- has never fished as shoots, I've yet to see rainbows fight any harder than these rainbows fight. They are extraordinary. And that's one thing that makes, even though they don't get big, like a 20-incher is really about maxed out. It's about how big they get. But they're native wild fish, super just strong. And then when you get in the current, you know, I mean, you, it is really hard to land. Uh, you know, once you get above a 16 inch fish on the shoots, you know, you're in for like you, there's a good chance it's going to break you off. And and so I, I was fighting this thing and it's like in my backing and, um, remarkably, eventually we get it in close and dad comes down and helps and, and then he, we net the fish and, it ends up being, um, an, an, 18 inch rainbow, which happened to be like the biggest rainbow he had ever caught on the Deschutes. <laughs> <laughs> and this was like my first rainbow on the Deschutes. And, and so, you know, he, he was like, kind of had this look on his face of like, he was happy, but he was also just like, what the, and, um, you know, at any rate, we don't think we had even had a camera or anything back then, but, It was, it was just one of those moments that just kind of changed me in terms of like, I I was, I was just completely hooked at that point. All all I wanted to do was, was, was fly fish. And yeah, it was, it was a really special, special moment and, and kind of changed the trajectory of my life. I was fascinated, became fascinated in entomology. I was like, like tying, starting tying flies on my own, reading all these books It just became, yeah, fly fishing, basketball, and girls. You know that was (laughs) that was it. That that was me from age thirteen on. (laughs)
2: Well, you're in a good place now with basketball, Baylor.
3: Oh man, yeah, yeah. Baylor has been uh, remarkably good in 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 a lot of sports, but yeah, coming off a, a national title. Uh, for men that was pretty that was pretty cool and they've won a couple on the women's side since I've been there as well so
2: so exciting I was curious though was your dad like give me my flyback give me that (laughs) I need that flyback take it off here use this foam
3: he may he may in fact yeah I, I, I don't remember that part but
2: there is something beautiful about the Deschutes we my husband's from Bend, Oregon and um And that's another beautiful area. And like you said, those water is very challenging. It's very technical. And so for you to be able to catch a fish out there, I still haven't caught a fish out there. So, um, fingers crossed I get an opportunity, but I've only gone once. Um, but yeah, it's such a beautiful area. I know you said that it changed the, that fish changed the trajectory of your life. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, um, being the prof- you know the professor of aquatic biology and exactly what does that mean
3: well I, you know my my training uh, you know essentially I, I didn't necessarily know that i wanted to be a professor but from that point forward obviously i mean i was obsessed with fly fishing i was obsessed with aquatic entomology i became really understood the the, the interface of you know healthy water and in the environment. And so I became very interested in environmental policies and things that were affecting water quality and even, you know, began like the Clean Water Act and things like that. And so I ended up going to grad school at Duke. Initially, I got a degree, a a Master of Environmental Management with a specialty in water resources. And that was a lot about environmental policies but while I was there, I really came to realize that I didn't want to just be like a consultant or working for a federal agency or state um, doing policy work. I wanted to be the researcher who was doing science that led to policy decisions. And so I stayed on at Duke and got a PhD. I actually worked in the Everglades for my dissertation. Um, wow. And, and it, basically I studied I, I was using aquatic macroinvertebrates, mostly aquatic insects, as indicators of water quality um, in response to excessive nutrient enrichment from fertilizer, particularly um, sugarcane fields that were draining pollutants into the Everglades. And so, basically, so essentially, the, uh, instead of just taking a water sample and getting a snapshot of what the what the water chemistry looks like you know the bugs as a community are like more like a movie like a video like they tell you what's been going on over a long period of time they integrate the environmental conditions and and so i was able to use the community of of, of organisms to kind of show that there were like really big changes occurring when water chemistry reached a certain kind of threshold and so that sort of become my research area is environmental thresholds using aquatic insects, um, and I use algae and fish as well, but aquatic insects in particular as indicators of water quality, and then d- using that information to help inform policy decisions uh, related to how much is too much when it comes to pollutants in the environment. And so at Baylor, you know, I run a research lab. I've had, uh, I've graduated nine doctoral students, five master's students. um, And they've gone on to, you know, careers in in academia and, and federal research labs, consulting things of that nature. And, you know, and most of what they do is similar obviously to what I do. And, and so I've, I've tried to pass that on to, to others. And, and so, um, so we do a lot of research along those lines and um, I teach courses that are similar to that. Like I teach a course just called aquatic biology. That's mostly about the taxonomy of, of aquatic animals. Um, I teach stream ecology. I teach a graduate course in it in advanced data analysis so i also do a lot of computer programming and and statistics so all of that kind of comes together so I, i'm really kind of an interdisciplinary guy in terms of my training and but i think that's played out well in terms of you know I, I again i never could have predicted where i would have ended up at that point in my life but i think i ended up where i i, I mean it's hard to hard to imagine a better sort of fit for, for for me.
0: And now a brief message from our sponsors. Here at CDUSA, we have owned nearly every brand of fly rod throughout our 30-year careers as guides and globetrotting anglers. When we discovered Composite Development's flagship fly rods, the XL2 and the ICT2, we uncovered a secret harbored by the Kiwis for four decades. Born from Japanese tourer, CD's unique manufacturing process involves winding the graphite fibers inside the blank, negating heavy thread wraps at the end of each section, creating a lighter and more durable fly rod. Check out the XLS-2 and the ICT-2 at your local CD USA dealer or go to cd-fishing.us and remember to go fishing.
2: What was, I know you said that you've done some policies, like what is one of the most Um, important policies that you've seen that have um, gone through, through your research?
3: Well, i probably, uh, I guess I ended in 2016, but I led a three year study that um, was called the Oklahoma, Arkansas joint phosphorus study. That's probably a little technical sounding, but basically it was the culmination of a 30 year legal battle between the states of Oklahoma and Arkansas um, it was actually a, there was actually a 1992 Supreme Court case that Oklahoma won over Arkansas uh, regarding uh, t- release of nutrients from wastewater into what Oklahoma, Oklahoma has what's called the, some designated scenic rivers in, in eastern Oklahoma, but all the all the rivers start in Oklahoma in Arkansas, and so o- Arkansas was releasing excessive nutrients that was. Essentially, causing really nasty algal blooms in these rivers, and it actually went to the Supreme Court, and that th- that particular case was so important for other environmental because what it showed was it, what the ruling meant was that an upstream um, government of you know whether it be a state or a county or a city cannot violate. The narrative numerical standards of a downstream municipality or state or whatever, and so that that case has become sort of a landmark case for environmental law. It's used almost in particularly when it relates to flowing water, because if you, you, know, you release water from one place and it, and it negatively affects someone downstream. They used that case as case precedent, and so any rate,
1: wow. so but this
3: but but so this went on though for many years, and finally the governors came together and they um, issued a basically a they commissioned a study for, by a third party that had to be from outside of the two states to determine what is the the, the threshold level of phosphorus. Based on certain cri- this criteria that they considered important and so I was I ended up applying for it and was awarded the grant and so we ran that study but it was probably the most stressful um, research I've ever done you know I mean we had tires slashed while we were up there we've had we had people filming us off of bridges
2: because they just didn't want to stop what they were doing.
3: Well, I mean, it's extremely contentious. You know, there there's both municipalities and the poultry industry uh, in Arkansas that had huge potential, you know, there were high stakes involved, depending on what that number ended up being. And it was going to end up costing them um, a lot of money. And so the number ended up being – Probably lower than, than they wanted, but but the, the, the study had people from both states overseeing, and I had to go up there every couple of months and present what I was doing, and they would give feedback, and there were lawyers in the room. and 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 finally, at the end, they all agreed that the data were unequivocal, number was what it was, and they all signed it, and the governors from both states signed it. And it is legally binding, and Arkansas has to comply with it. So,
2: Wow. it's like your modern day Hatfield and was it Hatfields and McCoy? Almost sounding <laughs> like both states are fighting, but you're like the middleman. I'm just going to base it on science. Like this is what my research says. This is what our studies find. Nothing against the state. Like this is just what's happening to our to the water system.
3: Yeah, it it, it it that's that's pretty much how how it felt and um it, it was the most rewarding research I've ever done it was also the most stressful. Yeah, uh, it's scary. Yeah. Yeah, there there were some times where I was I was a little concerned for um and I had a big research team of students and, and yeah. technicians and so you know I was always a little concerned for their safety. And right. so I actually went, I was always in the field with, with, with them. Um, I, I spent, it got to be, you know, we'd go up every two months for, for, for about 10 days. And so it kind of got to be, uh, af- after doing that for, you know, over two years, when we stopped, it was almost like hard to, it was almost like, I need to go back up to Arkansas. <laughs> I'm so used to doing it. Uh, that it just became part of my life. And, uh, and that is a very, that, that's the Ozark Highlands are just gorgeous streams. I mean, the water yeah. is crystal clear. And, 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 you know, it's sort of the, the oasis of Oklahoma, the Illinois River and, and some of the tributaries there. Um, you know, that's in the summer. I mean, the, there's canoes and rafts, practically just like a one huge connected flotilla of, of so yeah. many people enjoying that resource. And that and it's a very p- poor you know part of the country and and, and they need that income um, right and so you know there was a lot of reasons why that uh, i think that needed to be protected and um, i'm hoping that the water does get cleaned up and that it um, people are able to use that resource to its full extent
2: absolutely i mean It's always so hard when you think about income and livelihood versus the environment. Sometimes you think of what I need now as opposed to what the long term is. And I think that's, you know, as a society, sometimes like I need what fulfills me right now as opposed to like, well, this will not sustain anybody in the long run. Like we need to keep our environment healthy and safe. We had to like live in Peoria, Illinois. And I remember for two years and we moved from Missoula and I was like, well, at least there's a river that goes through Peoria. And someone's like, well, you can't swim in there. And I was like, you can't swim in the river. And they're like, yeah, it's disgusting. It's like tons. And I was like, well, that's, that stinks. Like we can't go in the river. And that still to, to this day boggles me that there's a river that you can't go swimming. Cause it's too gross. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. Cause I was reading, I have kind of segueing, but I was reading a little bit about alligator gar and long nose gar and i have no clue about these species but they look amazing and they look so much fun and it, learning about like how sharp their teeth are and but i also was reading that they're they're also in danger there isn't as many they're having to just stalk them cuz they've kind of gone um, extinct or they've just dis- disappeared
3: that's a, well that's right I mean, and and alligator gar in particular are they are very long-lived species you know estimates up to a 100 years that they can live and you know uh females generally are not reproductive until they're about 10 years old is 10 to 11 is kind of our estimates so it may be younger in places but you know at uh, 10 years is a long time to to live before you can you can reproduce and a 10 year old fish is is pretty is at that point is a is pretty good sized fish um and so Um, historically, you know, alligator gar, like a lot of, you know, just, it's just ignorance, right? I mean, you can't blame ignorance. Doesn't mean that people are dumb. It just means they don't know any better. And, And and so historically you've got this fish that gets big and has huge teeth. And the assumption is, is that it's eating all the fish that you care about. Right. And so and and generally, they weren't, you know, viewed as a as a good quality eating or game fish. Even though, um, while I've yet to have it, there are a lot of people, uh, particularly like in Louisiana and East, East Texas, who, who who eat alligator gar and prepare it, and they simply have to know how to do it. And and they they say it's quite good. But point being, these fish were were abused. You know, it, it, when they were caught, either tossed on the bank, but but often. Um, they were bow fished. So people would shoot them with bows, uh, and, and, and then just drag, you know, as many of them into town in go into town and show off with the big, the seven and a half foot, um, 220 pound fish that probably is 60 or 70 years old. After a while, you know, they were wiped out from most of their range, which was throughout much of the Mississippi drainage, like even Illinois, you talk about mm-hmm. Illinois they've been recently reintroduced to Illinois in some places because they're trying to, and they actually are saying maybe alligator gar can help control the, the, the Asian carp population. Right. Cause of, yeah. you know, the explosion of those, I don't know if you familiar with those jumping carp that, that.
2: Well, it's so funny you said the bow thing. And I literally thought of Asian carp being, cause that's a thing that they do on the Illinois river and funny story. Some girl was doing it and, the carp hit her in the side of the face and broke her jaw. <laughs> she had to have her jaw wired shut. I mean, it was like, wow, those fish are pretty mighty. Those Asian carp are tough.
3: Yeah, so some of those, some of those videos of people getting hit by Asian oh. carp, like you know, some d- dude getting hit right in the crotch while they're going for <laughs> an hour. I mean, that has gotta hurt.
2: Uh, I know it does. It looks painful, like yeah. They even have it on video. It was a show I was working on, and the carp just slow. They did a slow motion of it hitting her jaw, and literally, you could see her jaw go sideways. Uh,
3: You're like, oh, gosh. like a scene from Dodgeball.
2: <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> if you can dodge a carp, you can dodge anything.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's hilarious. Yeah, so. Um, so, so yeah they were all through those areas and and gradually extirpated and and really the the, the remaining quote you know, quote-unquote healthy populations of alligator gar are in are in East Texas and into Louisiana Um you know, there's some in 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 Oklahoma and in Arkansas, but again, best populations are still like in particularly the Trinity River in in Texas and then some parts of Louisiana, because suddenly there is there's more and more interest in alligator gar from an angling perspective. There's been a uh, back in '09, Jeremy Wade did a show on river monsters on alligator,
2: mm, yes, and, and
3: that that actually really got people interested in coming and fishing for them because, you know, there, there were guys who guided for alligator gar, um, in, in Texas, but, you know, until that show, it was, it was not that popular. And, and suddenly, um, they estimated that, um, a hundred thousand people last year fished for alligator gar on the Trinity river. That's what Texas parks and wildlife estimated. That's a lot of, animals. Um, And so, you know, and so you're talking about this long lived fish and, you know, I mentioned the bow fishing. Well, one of the neat attributes of their physiology is that they, they, they have gills, but they also have a swim bladder that's connected to their esophagus and they can breathe air so they can, they come to the surface and gulp. And so, You'll see gar g- coming to the surface and gulping air, and they do that in the summer, particularly in the even mornings to early afternoons when the oxygen levels in the water tend to be a little bit lower, and and that's one reason why gar have been around for like 200 million years is they can essentially live in a mud hole. It, you know, if they get stuck in, in high you know high water and and water drains and they're sitting there they, they can sit there and live in a mud hole for for weeks uh, wow. and, and, and just gulp air and w- until the water levels come back up and they reconnect and and we know that there were times historically where the uh, climate was much warmer and water was you know and so the, this ability to, to gulp air and not have to rely on dissolved oxygen um, gives them this this really unique advantage to live in in environments that are not hospitable to to other fish and so but that also brings them to the surface and that's what leads to these these people who use bows to to shoot and kill them Um, Mm -hmm. and so that and so bow fishing remains a very popular thing has gotten actually very much more popular in recent years and that presents a real threat to, yeah. to, to alligator gar and and there there are um, a lot of places in Texas um, where populations are not as strong and it, it would not take if it weren't for difficult access like I, I know some places where there are gar, but I'm, I, I, there are hardly any there's hardly anyone there because you can't get there because of private land but if people start getting in there, they could wipe out those populations very quickly and and that's why right now we're we're doing gar research in my lab on on the brazos river um because we want to help change policies regarding gar i mean I, these word love but i mean we couple my colleague and i we love these we love these creatures and um and to 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 see something as magnificent as, I grant, some people I think they're ugly. I, I think they're beautiful, and they, and they're you know so long lived. Just to waste their life, it breaks my heart. And so
2: yeah, if if Gar, because I what would happen if they just disappeared? Like ecosystem react to the Gar not being in the waters that they're used to. The
3: myth about Gar eating game fish, like bass, of course everyone's obsessed Mm -hmm. with bass in the South. uh, That's exactly what it is, is a myth. Um, Gar, first of all, they spend, you know, most of the time in most of the places they occur there there aren't necessarily they're in habitats that aren't that conducive to for bass and there may be some bass but there'll be catfish and other fish around but primarily what gar eat are um bottom feeding um native and non-native fish so there's a fish called a smallmouth buffalo that is abundant in the slow-moving large rivers of Texas and Louisiana, and and then there's another fish called a freshwater drum, and and of course you're familiar with common carp. Well, those mm-hmm. are probably the and then gizzard shad. Those are the, those are those are the three the four most abundant um, food sources for alligator gar, and none of those fish are fish that people actively target although common carp has become a real popular thing for fly fishermen but not in these habitats we're talking about right muddy water that's deep they're actually helping balance the ecosystem by controlling or just eating these bottom feeding fish that actually contribute to the turbidity or the clarity of the water because they're stirring up mud all the time and and, you know that's one of the things about carp that they can become a real nuisance they can take a water water body that's clear and make it quite muddy because all because they root around in the mud all day long trying to eat small crustaceans and and insects and uh and so alligator gar actually can 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 modulate water clarity by top-down control of some of these bottom feeding fish and so that's one of the things that, that could happen but you know, I don't think we fully understand the, 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 you know, what the chain reaction that would happen from totally losing them. But you can look to Illinois as an example of a place where these invasive silver carp came. And historically, some of these places had alligator gar. Would would that have happened in in parts of the Mississippi where the alligator gar are, are not common anymore, but used to be how how much of a uh, top down would they have been able to control these things before they got out of hand and so so I, I i think we 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 often um don't think you know about the fact that nature you know kind of has a lot of checks and balances in place that that and we can sort of you know set off set off our, a chain reaction that's Something that you can't put you genie gets out of the bottle, if you will, and you can't really fix it. So um, any rate, I'm kind of rambling about the
2: No, I think it's like one of those things, like how will you ever know like if the alligator garb would have helped? Because now they're not there. So you have nothing to study on. And you're like, Well, I can't really study if they were here unless they're reintroduced. And then that way you can see what's how how the system is changing. But like you said, check and balances is such a necessity, especially when it comes to the ecosystem. Um, I am curious because in the beginning when I was looking reading about alligator gar and um, about how they have um, was it a double row of teeth on their upper jaw yeah I am curious now about the fly fishing yeah. how do you catch these fish okay. and what is the what's the method because I'm like how it, it reminds me of a shark you know like a mako on the fly I'm like how do you possibly catch one of these fish on the fly
1: well
3: so the so so the challenge without alligator gar is a, a few fold the first is that okay okay their population densities are not because they're big you know they're it's, it's not like you're seeing them everywhere. It's not like you go to a trout stream and you just start, you know, you go to a run and you know, there's a bunch of trout right there. And you just start fishing. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're pre- can often be pretty widely dispersed and, and they're again, and they often occur in fairly muddy water conditions, which is obviously not conducive to fly fishing because the fish needs to be able to see the fly and you need to be able to kind of see the fish. So just blind casting in a muddy river is not gonna be very productive. Um, and so what, what I do is it's primarily sight fishing and, and also try to find places that have water clarity. And in, in this part you know, of the world, um, water clarity of, of 18 inches to, to, to three feet is kind of, it's pretty good. That doesn't sound very good but it's pretty good for for a, 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 a large river and so if you can get water clarity like that you can often see fish suspended you know uh, a few inches to you know below the surface or you'll start to see them come up and and so it's it's a it's really technical in the sense that you've got a big rod i tie these big custom flies that have tandem big, sharp hooks, so front and back hook. Um, you know, they're 6 to 12 inches long, flies, like musky fishing. It's real similar yeah. to hefty, but instead of blind casting like musky fishing, it's all sight fishing, and which is so exciting. So suddenly... You so start, much you fun. You suddenly see this fish. So we're in a boat, you're just cruising along real slow, and you're just looking. You're just looking and looking, and all of a sudden, you get your shot. But your shot lasts... It's like, so uh, I've only gone tarpon fishing once and, you know, with tarpon, like a lot of times suddenly you see one and you've got to make the cast and you've got to hit him within, there's like the little three foot window, like right in front of him where you got to stick the fly. And that's, that's almost exactly what alligator gar fishing is like, except you have even less time. You don't get to, usually have don't get another chance. It's basically, you'll see one coming up. And you've got to just immediately hit them and get it in front of them. And then you strip, strip, try to get their attention. And usually if they see it, they will absolutely destroy it. It's, it is, it is, that's the part that's so cool is that they are extraordinarily aggressive. They just don't see very well. And they're, again, they're in this muddy water situation. So unless you're in a clear water, situation, you've, you've got to put it right on their nose. And so, you know, imagine a 50, 60 foot cast with a, you know, a 12 inch fly that has two giant oh. on it and, and, and you've got to put it right on their nose. And, and so, so when they, so, so that's, that's, so that's getting, just getting them to take is, uh, you know, a huge, you know, obviously nothing would seem like it's most of the equation, but it's actually not. The next part is the hardest part, literally, is their mouths. Their mouths are just pretty much just bone. There's hardly any um, soft tissue to, to, for that hook to really penetrate. And so, basically, there's there's some luck involved. And I've worked on different designs and different techniques. Um, you know, the vast majority of the takes I've had with alligator gar end up being um, either I don't hook them at all or I'll have them and it will and then they'll shake their head and then the fly will come out. Um, but, you know, a you know, few things I don't want really to get into too much detail, but a lot of it has to do with the, where the direction the fish is swimming when you cast to them. The worst is like if it's facing you and you cast to it. It takes, because then when you set the hook, you're essentially, it opens its mouth and it starts shaking its head. And so the fly is pulling right back at, at away from it, right at you. So what you want is a fish that's kind of swimming laterally or away from you, because then when you set the hook and it starts to shake its head, you're pulling the fly back into its mouth a little bit more. And if you get it back into that corner of its mouth where there's some tissue to, to hang on to, that's when you can get them. And you just have to, just like tarpon, you just have to keep strip setting. Boom, 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 over. You think you've done enough? No, got to do it small. Keep <laughs> strip setting. Just keep strip setting. Just keep strip setting. And then, yeah, finally, after- Do they I,
2: fight hard? Are they like fighting you the entire time up to
3: till, till they, they get- are, they, are, they are extremely strong. And so I've had, you know- I've had some on that were over a hundred pounds for sure. Um, and these were ones where I just w- did not get them hooked well enough. And they eventually threw the hook. The, 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 la- the largest one that I've weighed it, it landed in weighed, was, was is the Texas state record for flat rod. And that it's for, it was right around 41 pounds. Uh, and that's not a big alligator guard, but, but, but my goodness on a fly rod, that is a big fish. (laughs) I mean, think about it. I mean, it's, this is, this is a predator, a big badass predator fish that you could go out and catch and release uh, on a fly rod. Uh, and it's 40 pounds, you know, I mean, to me that, so, um, I'm very interested in not only continuing to, you know, get better at catching them. Um, as I work on that, on my game, but, but teaching other people how to catch them and eventually developing, a, you know, a catch and release mentality for these fish. Because I think like a, a lot of fish, what will save them is having, you know, anglers who want to conserve them. And, and so I, I, I may even I'm considering developing a little bit of a part time guide service um, in the coming years um, uh, where I teach people how to catch gar um and yeah because I, I i i love it and i think there's a lot of people who need to experience it um and come to love these creatures and so they have ad- more advocates and um, because it will yeah it will be a real tragedy to see these fish disappear and uh i i don't i think texas is is is, is working on it. I mean, they're, they're, they've got active studies going on and we're working with Texas Parks and Wildlife as well on our research. So I think Texas cares. It's just, I just want to make sure, you know, it's, they're getting ahead of things because it's, right. things are blowing up and, and in terms of interest in these fish. And, um, I don't know, I don't know if they're going to be able to get their regs in place in time. Um, cause you know, 80 90 year old fish. I mean, it takes a long time to replace that,
2: yeah, yeah. And especially, like you said, the females it takes 10 years for them to start having the eggs, which you know, I mean, if they're being killed. There's not going to be that opportunity. And I also feel like a lot of this kind of sounds like, you know, the steelhead where it's like, when it starts, when the numbers start getting dwindling is when we start taking action. And that should never be the case. It should be like, we should always have a constant healthy um, habitat before it gets to the dire, like, oh, they're gone. Mm -hmm. And now what do we do? And it's like, let's, let's quickly catch up. But sometimes it, you know, that, that happens and it's gone. And I think it's so great that you're going to think it possibly about this guide service because like you said, I think with experience becomes a passion and that passion becomes conservation. Like we see that here also in Montana, people love the Black, but people love the Clark Fork. And there's so many conservations within Trout Unlimited, the Clark Fork Coalition, um, the Blackfoot, you know, there's so many places where people are putting um, these nonprofit organizations to sustain what we love to do. And so if you create this experience, um, I'm... I'm totally want to catch one of these fish come on up to Texas, catch- Texas yes, come on, yes. Come on. I was thinking about when you said strip 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 I was thinking like have you ever stripped so hard and then the fly came flying back at you like oh <laughs> shit yeah.
3: yes I have and with these with these two eight dot hooks coming back at your face yeah yeah it, it, can, it can be a little bit tr- a little bit sunglasses dangerous.
2: must have to be a must yeah. right like yeah. never take off your goddamn sunglasses.
3: Absolutely. Seriously, eye protection, huge. Yeah. You got to You got to have it. So, but yeah, come on out, Lauren. We'll do it.
2: Oh my gosh. I would absolutely love it. And I know you were talking about the fly that you were creating because also on top of all this free time that you have, you do a lot of fly tying and you used to be a commercial fly tire. I'm a little bit um, curious. um, What is this fly that you're creating and does it have a name?
3: Well, it's, it's based off of, you know, so as a commercial tire and having been around, I mean, one of the things, and I don't want to get too far off on tangent, this could be a whole nother episode, but just with flies, I mean, flies. most flies are, are really adaptations of other flies, right? You know, and, and, and it kind of drives me nuts that, that there's like all these flies that are constantly coming out. You go to a fly shop and you see these bins and there's these flies with these <laughs> yes. these ridiculous names and and I'm like this is just a humpy where they used a different color of, you know, they, instead of using deer hair they use foam on the back or something. You know yeah. I'm yeah. what I'm saying? Like the, and all these the
2: creativity t- is kind of there, but they it's based on somebody else's model. Yeah,
3: and 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 all the tires of years past who designed these flies are being forgotten and, and and their names are lost and most new people don't know them and, and it kind of bugs me and and um, so what so I my fly is, is is nothing more than adaptations of musky flies um, particularly like Nicholas Bauer is a pike fisherman actually and in, in I believe he's in Sweden um, and, and I've tied a lot of flies that are similar to his pike flies. And then Paolo pa- pa- Paccherini has developed these, these, um, different, they're called like dragon tails. Um, yes. they're, um, and some people will be like, Oh, that's not a fly. You know, it's, but, but let's face it. We're, we're using all sorts of synthetics and flies and stuff now. And these it's dragon crazy tails. some of the
2: synthetics out there. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah.
3: And so these, so I use, a dragon tail off of the back of this of tandem hook um fly i use this material called fly fur that's really it's like craft fur that's really long and and um, creates a lot of bulk in the water but it's really light and um one of the things you want to avoid because these these gar have teeth is you don't want materials that sort of hang up in their teeth while you're trying to set the hook. You want it to just be like a real clean set so that, so having a fly that kind of bulks up in the water and poofs out yet slicks down when you set it and doesn't interfere with the hooks is really important. So I've used, I've used, um, you know, kind of that sort of material, and, and then and then the dragon tail just is so enticing in the water. And um, so I ended up, I mean, a, a red and white version is what I tend to use a lot. And I've called it, I called it a red dragon when I had to submit the fly, submit the record. They add, I, I had to say what I was using, what the name of the fly You're was. Right. And so I just called it a red dragon, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's, you know, again, it's not really, it's just, It's just an adaptation of other people's flies. And so um that's that's how that's more or less the fly.
2: I feel like you've hit it that on the nail because i think a lot of people think like i created this i'm like well this is based on somebody's from like 1920s or 1950s like they created this i can google this and yeah you added some flashaboo and now it has six legs instead of four but yeah you know that doesn't change the 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 structure of the bug and exactly what it is
3: i mean yeah look think of the number of patterns that are based off of a woolly bugger. Woolly bugger is based off a of woolly worm, which is which didn't have a marabou tail. So everyone talks about the woolly buggers about but really the woolly worm was a, a pattern that was developed before that. You know, and so there's, I'd almost it almost be a fun project to write a book called The Phylogeny of Flies, The Evolution of Flies and Their Common Ancestors and sort of linking all the flies that are popular today back to the original patterns that were really developed. Um, You know, just so that people have a better appreciation for like how these flies really came about and that, hey, you know, your fly really isn't all that novel.
2: Um, it's not that you're not you're not special
1: yeah no, yeah not,
2: not a bad way well i do know a professor of aquatic biology at baylor that maybe have like the science behind it that could help you write that <laughs> <laughs> Just, <laughs> i think that seriously is such a brilliant idea and i think you have a big opportunity to do the gar on the fly because you have so much time at this point you need to start a uh, part-time guiding
3: yeah you need yeah. To,
2: to do the fuck. you got yeah, plenty right. of time you can make this happen um And I know. Also, you, we were going to discuss because I need to know the difference between the long nose and the alligator gar. And I know you're going to give us a little bit of information about the difference between. Sure,
3: sure, absolutely. Well, long nose gar are they're in the same family as alligator gar, but they're actually in a different genus. Attractosteus is the genus of alligator gar, and there's only one other Attractosteus. It's called a Cuban gar um, in, in Cuba. Uh, and then the others are there's five five species of Lepisosteus in the world, so there are seven gar species in total and remaining in the world. And again, they've been around for almost 200 million years. And we look in the fossil record, and we see that they've actually not changed very much over time, which is evidence for an amazing body plan and amazing physiology, because if you haven't changed that much and you were able to live that that many millions of years, that's a pretty good. And so, but at any rate, to get to the point. So the long nose is the largest of the Lepisosteus species, those five, and they can achieve the current world record um, was caught actually just in 2017 from the Trinity river um, they, they grow some fat gar there and it, uh, it was 62 inches long and 43 pounds. So, but gar long nose basically, um, have a, a much lo- longer, slender body plan than, than an alligator gar. Alligator gar literally do look a lot with their, their jaws from the top look a lot like an alligator long gar have very long, thin, narrow jaws and that extend. Um, you know, sometimes it's probably about 15 to 20 percent of the total length of their body are their jaws. So just imagine these long, um, I'm trying to think of a fish like a needlefish or something like that, that may be something similar, but there are there are fish <laughs> some fish in the in the world and other places that have similar jaws, but they're pretty unique. And they have these very dense rows of extraordinarily fine teeth all along these jaws. And so you might be like, what in the world? Why would a fish have a body plan like this? Why? This seems kind of silly, right? Kind of ridiculously long nose, right? And it turns out they're, they're, they're ambush predators, but they feed they feed more on a sort of bigger, um, you know, bottom fishes like alligator gar do they tend to feed primarily on gizzard shad and um what they do and i've had i've actually raised long-nosed gar in aquaria from from fry and fed them you know all the way up and watch their behavior and it's so cool is they they, they first of all they they w- wait, often will wait for prey to get close to them or they'll see it and they'll re- really sneakily start moving towards it. But they they bite their prey by snapping sideways at it. They don't lunge, straight, like a pike or a muskie or something like that, lunges straight at the prey, engulfs it, right? Well, these guys will use these jaws and kind of snap sideways and grab onto the prey. And, they, and so the prey is often right in the middle of their jaws and it's like t-boned. It's almost like the, the the jaws are going straight forward, and the and their prey is basically uh, perpendicular to their. You know, it's like hanging out both sides of their mouth, right? <laughs> and so they'll just clamp down on it, and then they'll hold on to it for a little while, and, and and gradually kill that fish. And then they one that is very slowly they'll start taking their jaws and repositioning the prey turning it one little uh, angle at a time until the head turns and then they get the head into the lower part of their jaws and then they just start swallowing it and they always swallow head first. Um, And so, and and so, so when you fish for these long nose, it's an entirely different strategy because they are, almost impossible to hook there you can use there's guys who use flies with treble hooks and things like that that often end up like lassoing around their snouts or (laughs) uh you know or, or they'll they'll hook them but they hook a really low it's it's even harder to hook a long nose than it is to hook an alligator gar and so i do use flies with hooks um for them and i do hook them but i often use flies That are made um, primarily of fine, um, not nylon fibers. Okay. And the nylon fibers will actually get caught in their jaws. So they'll snap at the fly, just like I described. And what I'll do is instead of striking, like you would normally actually give the fish slack and the fish will start to run off with it and it tries to do that repositioning like I just described. But every time it opens and closes its mouth, it's actually getting those fibers kind of tangled up in its teeth. And then I'll, I'll count to five or count to ten and then gently raise my rod and put a little pressure on it. And I would say about 80 percent of the time I got them.
2: Wow. What's the biggest one you've got? Yeah.
3: Um, 60 inches is the longest one um wow. and, and I, I we regularly catch them um over 50 inches long and and these are you know a, a 50 inch long fish if it's fat will be you know 15 pounds or so and um, you know again they're long and slender but they pull hard and and there's more of them and um they are a lot of fun. They're also highly disrespected. I mean, the bow hunters just kill them, you know, like left and right. And, uh, that drives me crazy. And, but, um, that we're also studying long nose gar, um, and, um, also, you know, looking at their populations and trying to understand their vulnerability. Um, but, uh, there, there, there. I also enjoy. So, if you go to my Instagram, you'll probably see pictures of me holding long nose gar, and, uh, and I'll oftentimes wear gloves and I'll actually hold them by the snout. It's a nice little handle. <laughs> to- yeah, I
2: was gonna say, like, when you are retrieving your fly from their mouth, like, how do you do that safely without cutting off your finger?
3: Well, always, I always wear gloves that have are latex coated, and and you know. Um, some people scoff at this technique that, I'm used, that I use to catch them, but, uh, you know, I think it's a lot of fun and, and I, I've gotten very efficient. It's like I, I either bring the fish into the boat or I'll just hold it off the side of the boat. And um, with, with uh, needle nose pliers, um, I pry open their jaws and I, and I pull the fibers out from their teeth. I make, I make sure all the fibers are out. Um, I can usually stick my thumb into the jaw right at the base to kind of hold it open. You can, you can use some, you know, like they make those, uh, for my pipe that that are like a clamp that will keep a fish's mouth open, or you can stick a piece of wood or something in there to help keep it open. If you're really worried about it, but I usually just stick my thumb in there because I've got the gloves on holds it. And then I just pull the fibers out and I, you know, usually, takes me 10 to 20 seconds and I've got the fish unbuttoned Um, and, you know, and I've never, a hook has never penetrated the fish's mouth. It's, they they definitely know that, I mean, they fight like they're hooked, but they're not, but the, you you know, they're not feeling any pain either. So it's, it's. um,
2: It seems like their survival rate after a catch is pretty high because of the oxygen that they're, they're able to gulp. Sturdy fish. As long as they don't have an arrow going down their gills.
3: That's, yeah, they are, uh, you know, and, and do, people still do kind of mishandle them. Particularly, you see pictures of alligator gar that people have drug up onto the sand and they're just completely covered sure. in sand and they're holding them by the gills. And
2: mm, I cannot stand the gill shot unless yeah. you're eating it, but I'm always like, yeah. No,
3: and I'm seeing a lot of that on Instagram and I've, I've blocked some of those people. I've really maybe it's
2: cringeworthy i mean unless they're like here's our fish that we're about to eat i don't mind but i still don't even like seeing the picture of someone's hand no no i mean it's almost like putting your hand in someone's lung you're like
3: well exactly yeah so so yeah you these fish can come can stay out of the water um a lot longer you know you just want to you just want to keep them wet, and and make sure you don't. If you bring them in the boat, you don't want to set them down on a hot surface. Make sure it's wet and cool, and you know try to protect their slime coat a little. And yeah, and yeah, their their survivability is is probably going to be pretty darn close to a hundred percent if if you take care of them. You know, so they're awesome. Gar, awesome. I love them.
2: And isn't it true that the female fish have poisonous eggs that their eggs are toxic?
3: They're yeah, they're very toxic to humans as far as I know. I mean people say that that is definitely the case. So you make you I don't know what exactly, if it's a uh, hepatotoxin or what? But um, but yeah, Sounds like
2: a murder mystery, like what happened to the, like what happened yeah. to the woman's? Yeah. Doesn't it sound like yeah. a
3: murder mystery we book? Could. We could write like a novel about revenge.
2: Well, we have time for this, right, Ryan? Yeah, we've got so far the guide, me we've too. got a book on the evolution of fly tying, and now we got a murder mystery book that c- pertains to alligator alligator gar eggs. Uh huh. I am seriously, this has been one of the most amazing um, interviews I've had. I've learned so much. And I know we talked about your um, Instagram account. Can you give um, an information to how people can follow you?
3: Sure. Um, it's RKing4Rivers, the number four. So my, just the letter R and my last name King all together, Letter the number four and then rivers, so for rivers. Um, and that's my handle on Instagram. And come check come check out my page and give me a follow. And I, 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 t- I tend to follow everyone back. It, it, if, if they have a private account, I, a lot of times I assume they don't necessarily want me to, so I, unless they ask me, I don't necessarily follow private ones. And if you're a bow fisherman, I'll probably block you. Um, but besides that, um, come give me a follow, and I'll follow you
0: back. Go to thefebruaryroom.com, where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.